are listening to a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Here on this third Sunday in Eastertide, we have two relatively long stories, familiar stories, each dealing with figures who are extraordinarily important in the birthing of the Christian church, Peter and Paul. Paul, who at this point identified with his Hebrew name of Saul, and who in time would begin to be addressed more commonly with the Latin name of Paul. That's actually an interesting sidebar, because while the name Saul was connected with royalty, The first king of Israel was King Saul. It means literally asked for or prayed for. The Latin name Paul, on the other hand, means little or small. This is evidently how Paul came to place himself in his work amongst those Gentile communities spread across the Mediterranean as the one who would become small in order to show Jesus as the great gift to the people. But as this story opens, he is most definitely Saul, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He is fierce in his desire to see the Jesus movement reduced to nothing. Saul is a deeply committed Pharisee, for whom the beliefs of the early Jesus movement were deeply problematic and ultimately heretical. He's vigilant. He's willing to seek out the approval of the high priest, granting him permission to travel to Damascus to arrest any Jesus followers he might find there. Now, it's a distance of some 350 kilometers from Jerusalem to Damascus, So we're talking about a highly committed defender of the one true faith. Or the one true faith as Saul understood it up to this critical moment. This story is generally referred to as the conversion of St. Paul. But it might better be called the radical reorientation of Saul the Pharisee. See, as a Pharisee, He would have been deeply schooled in the Hebrew scriptures, knowing them more closely than you or I ever will. He would have also been immersed in a discipline of prayer, which at that time often drew upon the imagery of the book of Ezekiel, with its picture of the great chariot with whirling wheels and a light like fire representing what Ezekiel calls the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. To glimpse in meditative prayer something of that image of glory was considered the highest form of prayer for the Pharisees. And so N.T. Wright imagines Paul on the Damascus road, immersing himself in that discipline of prayer. And so Bishop Wright offers this. He says, Imagine Saul's excitement as in the depth of devout meditation he saw with the eyes of his heart so real that it seemed as though he was seeing it with his ordinary physical eyes. 
was so real that he realized he was seeing it with his physical eyes. The form, the fire, the blazing light, and the face. And the face was the face of Jesus of Nazareth. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? This was, of course, the moment of radical disruption for Saul. Persecute you? That makes no sense. And so with a trembling heart, he can only ask, Who are you, Lord? The answer, of course, is that it is Jesus. Jesus is about to completely reorient the path of Saul's life. The ardent Pharisaic foe and persecutor will become the great apostle to the Gentile world, which is about as upside down and unexpected as anything you can possibly imagine. Now, turn with me toward the story from the Gospel according to John, which has at its heart the figure of Simon Peter. Peter doesn't need to be reoriented in order to proclaim Jesus is Lord, but he's still limping. He's still in need of some kind of restoration. The disciples here are at the Sea of Tiberias, also known as the Sea of Galilee, about 120 kilometers from Jerusalem. They're back in their home territory of Galilee, in other words, which is a place of comfort and familiarity. The sea is particularly familiar, which is why Peter is so ready to haul a boat out onto the water and start fishing. Quote, but that night they caught nothing. Or they didn't until this figure on the beach tells them to try casting their nets on the other side of the boat. And of course, as we've come to expect, quote, now they were not able to haul in the net because there were so many fish. Ah! It's Jesus. To the shore they rush. Dear old Peter leaping into the water to swim to the beach, while the others rather more calmly just row the boat ashore. A breakfast of grilled fish and bread awaits them, and then Jesus takes Peter aside and asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Three times the question is asked. Three times Simon Peter answers yes, 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 each time getting a little more hurt and more frustrated, finally saying, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Two things to reflect on here. One being that this threefold questioning parallels Peter's threefold denial of Jesus on the night of his arrest. In that sense, Peter denied knowing Jesus three times, so now Jesus will ask him to affirm his love three times in this resurrection light. That's simple, right? It makes sense. But then there's a question of which form of the word love the two of them use here. Twice Jesus asks, Peter, do you agape me? Both times, Peter replies, yes, Lord, I philos you. As you may know, conventionally, philo is the term used for friendship love. 
that kind of bond, that kind of affection. While agape tends to be used for selfless and even godly love. So Jesus says agape, Peter says philo. Jesus says agape, Peter says philo. The third time Jesus says, Peter, do you philo me? Which is fascinating. Is he backing down from asking for Peter's agape? Perhaps thinking that Peter can't quite rise above friendship love to something higher? Or is there something else tucked into this text? Here I turn to the scholar Frank Crouch who says, When Jesus himself clarifies the highest form of agape, he does so in terms of philos. Love for friends is no second-class love here. No one has greater love, agape, than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends, philos. In fact, Jesus goes on to define his relationship with his disciples in terms of friendship. I do not call you servants any longer. I have called you my friends, philos. Jesus calls Peter not just to love, but to love others and to love them to the end. The love that Jesus is calling out from Peter is not abstract in any sense, but rather must be incarnated in the day-to-day, loving others in real terms even to the very end. Peter's restoration, Crouch adds, Peter's restoration to renewed relationship is also a restoration to a new kind of leadership. And that leadership is all about a deep befriending of one another, even to the point of being prepared to die for the sake of the other, the friend, which is precisely what will happen to Peter when he's executed for his faith as a Christian. On the beach that day, Peter is reconciled and set on a new path. Feed my lambs, Peter. Tend my sheep, feed my sheep. This is your new call, Peter. You can leave the boat on the shore of the lake because your new path is as a good shepherd to those who will dare to follow my way. You do love me, Peter, my friend. Take that love down every path you walk, deeply befriending those who join you on my way. That's your call now. That's your identity. So we have in these two readings, Paul and Peter, both called to embrace new identities as friends of Jesus. Paul with his life completely disrupted, yet somehow not disconnected from the path he had tried to walk as a faithful follower of God. And Peter released from his guilt, dusted off and put on a path of deep friendship. There's one more character in these stories who's called to a radical newness, and he can kind of disappear when you have Paul and Peter. His name is Ananias. He's the Christ follower who's called to welcome Saul Saul, the zealous persecutor of the Jesus way. Ananias is rightly hesitant, yet he goes. Quote, he entered the house and laid his hands on Saul 
and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Brother Saul, he says, which is an address both bold and beautiful, and surely for Saul the beginning of his whole new path. Ananias, too, is called to step beyond the familiar constraints, to risk everything for the sake of a truth that's beyond anything he'd formerly been able to ask or imagine. That which can cause us to limp, whether the blindness of Saul, the guilt of Peter, or the fear of Ananias, will not have the final word As was true with the three of them, that which seems impossible to overcome is but dross when it comes to the claim that Jesus places upon us. And part of that claim is that he is our friend. Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church and to access the full catalog of our podcasts going all the way back to 2006, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. In addition, if you are interested in supporting our online work, you can find information on the website using the Donate button located on the top right-hand corner. Thanks for listening.